Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 386, Interview with Damian Lewis about his latest book, Agent Josephine. American Beauty, French Hero, British Spy. Mr. Lewis, the author of Churchill's Secret Warriors, Hunting the Nazi Bomb, and many other World War II tomes, has written about the beautiful but scrappy Josephine Baker during the war. She had it all until the Nazis invaded her beloved France. Now she will fight back, but in her own special way. Mr. Lewis, thank you very much for being with us today. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure as always. It's good to be back. Absolutely. I was just telling my wife, I think this is your third or fourth time on the show. So then she turned to me and she said, well, get his address and send him his part of the royalties because that's not fair. So she, she, made a, <laughs> she made a valid point. No, but you've written so many books uh, on World War II and uh, other subjects. I'm sure you'll be back on the show, but I'm glad you wrote this book because... Like most people who have read about World War II, yeah, I've heard the name Josephine Baker. I know she was an American who went to Paris and she was in, she sang songs in film and stage. And I know she did something to help defy the Nazis. But that was pretty much the extent of what I knew, I knew about her. Um, but underneath it all, after reading your book, besides the smiles and the beauty and the talent, there was a very talented, brave, and compassionate person under all that. And she wanted to do her part, and she certainly did love France. Yeah, I mean, Josephine, um, you know, she, she was, she, the thing about her was she was tough. She was really tough. She mm -hmm. was a street fighter. She was unbreakable. And, you know, she'd fought, she'd fought tooth and nail and hard to make it, you know, as, as a global superstar, which was what she was, wow. you know, prior to the war. She was the most photographed woman in the world. Wow. Um, you know, just prior to the war and very high earning and hugely successful across Europe, not just in France. Mm -hmm. And when, of course, the specter of Nazi Germany and, you know, um, uh, Blitzkrieg and the, the, the onward march of the German war machine right. threatened to crush all the world's democracies, all the world's freedoms, all the things that she had experienced and now held very dear to her heart. Mm. You can imagine for her especially, this was a fight from which she could not turn away. So a lot of people have asked me, well, she was American. So when war broke out, why did she not do what the majority of Americans did, not all of them, but the majority, and, and, and return as neutral citizens to a neutral country. Right. Well, Josephine did not. She chose to stand and to fight. Yeah. Well, not only that, not only did she love France and she came to appreciate and adore French culture, but it's not like she had an easy time uh, in the United States growing up. Um, uh, could you kind of give us an idea of her earlier life and kind of the struggles that she went through that propelled her to want to move to Europe? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, Josephine was born in St. Louis um, and uh, born into poverty mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. to a black mother. And her, her father's unknown, could have been a white German guy, could have been a Hispanic. Right. Um, but she was born into a very, very impoverished household and background. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to give you an indication of the kind of poverty she suffered as a child, you know, she was... Um, as, as, as a small child, she was part of a street gang which stole coal from locomotives so they could go and heat, you know, take it back home and heat their homes. Right. Uh, she went to school barefoot. In fact, she pretty much bombed out of school, you know, in her very early teens. And fairly shortly, she ran away basically from home 
and joined a traveling dancing troupe because she had this like suspicion, this idea that maybe just maybe she could use song and dance as a way to escape the crushing poverty uh, of her um, early years. And she canny, you know, street smart. She realized that really the only place to break through Mm -hmm. to really break through was Broadway and New York. And, um, she made her way there eventually by kind of her mid-teens. She managed to get herself apart on a show on Broadway. But fairly quickly, she also realized that as a black female, mm-hmm. she really was never going to break through in America. And it was because of the Jim Crow laws and segregation uh-huh. that it really was not going to be possible for her to to you know achieve her potential as she saw it. And so when she was age 19, she was approached by an impresario, a theater manager, who happened to be putting on a new show in Paris, right. so the capital of France, um, called the, the, the Revue Negre, which is, um, which you know, planned to be a very kind of risky, provocative show featuring a lot of, lot of black artists. And she asked Josephine to play the lead female role. Wow. And Josephine kind of took her heart in her hands and very daunted, never had never left America and decided to take the plunge and sail for for Paris and Europe and to try to see if she could make it in, in, in the old world, uh, having heard that, you know, there Europe was largely free from prejudice or comparatively free from prejudice compared to the USA, mm-hmm. free from segregation. And she turned up in Paris, you know, she performed in, in the review Negra. It was extremely controversial, but it met with rave reviews. It took Europe by storm. And within a matter of years, I mean, bear in mind, she was only 19 when she went to, Paris, wow. by her very early 20s, she was a sellout star across Europe, touring all the main capitals, acclaimed across the, you know, the, the, the capitals of those nations and earning a very large amount of money. And shortly thereafter, she was, you know, performing in movies and really had made it as, you know, one of the world's really first global superstars. Right. And so it was in that within that context that, of course, you know, the drums of war started beating from Berlin and she began to perceive that, you know, there was this the specter of Nazism was rising from from Germany. Right. When, when I was reading about her life, the, the, the phrase that kept coming to my mind was that which doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Uh, I mean, so she was toughened up by the earlier years of her life. But you, but you made a very good point. She wasn't just pretty. She didn't just have a nice voice. She didn't just was a good dancer or had a nice body. She had a magnetism to her. And as we're going to see, that is going to be used by her quite brilliantly when she's talking to people, trying to gather information, people she would rather not be talking to, like Germans, but or excuse me, uh, the Nazi officers. But she was able to turn on the charm. And we'll get to all that. But before we jump too far into it, so a true rags to riches kind of story. Again, that's something to certainly admire, especially with all of her uh, limitations and the prejudices against her. But I wanted to ask before we moved on too much. So so you've written, I don't know how many books about World War II. I, I lost count. Um, so obviously you have an interest in Josephine. That makes sense. But what was it about her or her story that you decided to stop and dedicate a couple of years of your life to telling her story? Well, it's been a 10-year project, wow. um, so it's been a hell of a long burn. And, um, <laughs> right. I mean, you know, it, it, she first came to my attention, just some snippet on the media, mentioning her role as a spy in World War II. Right. Uh, very, very, almost no detail at all. And I thought, well, that's impossible. How could someone of Joseph in Baker's yeah. stature and instant recognizability, how could that person possibly serve as a spy because you know my understanding our archetypal idea of a spy is the gray man or woman the person who serves in the shadows is unnoticed by everyone and that's how they gather their intelligence so i kind of my curiosity was piqued to put it mildly and i began to dig (laughs) Mm -hmm. and then the more i kind of looked into the story the more utterly compelling it became and when i kind of realized that Josephine was, yes, she was a standout spy for France, but also, crucially, she was a standout spy for all the Allies. Very shortly after war broke out, she was a standout spy for London, for Britain, and then in due course, a standout war-winning spy for Washington and America. And when I realized the breadth of what she had achieved and the the broad church that she had served as as an agent— you know, and the way that she had used her stardom right. as her cloak and her dagger, 
I thought, you know, this is a story that has to be told. Absolutely. I mean, I knew uh, about the French stuff a little bit. I didn't know the British. I didn't know the Americas. And so so we'll probably touch on some of that later. But a couple of minutes ago, and this is very important to me, and you actually start your book with it, uh, the subject of sources. I got the sense, and, and please tell me, but I got the sense as you're doing your research, you were probably happier with some um, entities versus others. I, I was just wondering how tight-lipped some countries might yet still be about their activities during World War II. I was wondering what your impressions were as you were gathering sources from various locations. Did you run into some obstacles in certain places? You know, um, the British Intelligence Service never releases any files about its activities, right. ever. Wow. So that's just one example even older than World War Two, so there's no hope. Gotcha. I mean, occasion, right. occasionally something, you know, by accident slips in, into the ether, but it's extremely rare, and it is by accident. They have a blanket secrecy policy. Um, you know, I was extremely fortunate in that one of the key standout characters in the book, the British spymaster, um, Commander Wilfred Biffy Dunderdale, the guy who was the Secret Intelligence Service spymaster in Paris just prior to the war. Right guy with a seminal role in, in Josephine's story, I was deeply fortunate in that his private archive, because Dunderdale never spoke about his his spying activities throughout his life and went to his grave with his secrets, but his private archive, his letters, his documents from the war and before and after, uh, was acquired by a, a, a chap in it who, who's a British chap who lives in the States, a chap called Paul Biddle, mm -hmm. a real gentleman. And he reached out to me, heard I was researching this story and said, hey, look, I've got, you know, Commander Dunderdale's private wow. archive. Would you like to have access? And I was like, please. <laughs> and so he sent me copies of all this stuff. That's and, amazing. you know, that kind of stuff is gold dust. But, yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, there were there were so many different layers and so many grades of intelligence and material. Right. And one had to try to shift the veracity and the truth of all these different sources and stories. And more than that, you had to try to get to the agenda of why they might have told the version of the story they had and what they might have been trying to hide. So trying to simplify it, right. for example, of course, America wasn't invaded during the Second World War and occupied and nor was Britain, but France was. Mm -hmm. And so during the occupation, you know, the Nazis, the Gestapo managed to pit, you know, French men man against French man and French woman against French woman. Right. And sometimes, you know, that was even within families or certainly within communities and villages. And so these wounds, these enmities went very deep and were very, very vicious and, and, and long lasting. And they, they, they still pertain to this day. There are still these fractious, ah. um, you know, feelings and enmities between those who were collaborators and those who were resistance. And so many people have written, certainly many people in France and many French men and women have written versions of what happened during the war in part to kind of, you know, uh, keep in keeping with those kind of bitter and difficult rivalries. Gotcha. And then, of course, some of the activity that Josephine and her comrades were engaged in in the war, and thank God they did this, were, if not illegal, certainly on the boundaries of what would be legable and acceptable outside of a time of war. Right. So during the war, it's, you know, they thought, you know, we'll make a pact with the devil if we have to, to defeat Nazi Germany. But after the war, suddenly these activities that they had merrily engaged in, you know, working with forgers, assassins, the mafia, whoever it might be, right. were, you know, it had become deeply questionable. So you couldn't actually risk telling the whole truth, perhaps. And so, yeah, there were all these different kind of agendas that one had to sort through to try and distill down the truth of the story. Right. I'm, I'm glad you said that. So and based on your experience, was the French government, you've already said about the, the British, and I think that's a wise pol policy, they just don't release anything because you never know, it, it might affect something else. How, how did the French square up against the British as far as access to information? You know, I, we've got to, you know, I've got to take my hat off to the French. Right. Um, you know, they released a tranche of, of wartime documents about espionage activities, um, which included Josephine Baker, wow. Jacques Abte, her espionage partner, Paul Pellol, the head of the Deuxième Bureau's German desk and various others, mm -hmm. without which I could not have written this book or I certainly could not have written it 
and told the story as it uh, as it truly should have been told. So, you know, getting those documents was absolutely key to some of the major revelations in the book. You know, for example, the fact that Josephine spied for not just the French, but for the British and the Americans and who those people were that she was working with. So, you know, I, I, the French should be commended for doing so, the French government. It's, you know, those documents absolutely. were absolutely key. And without those, I would have had a, a much harder task. Yeah. And they only did so very recently, by the way, in the last two years. Yeah, I was going to say, because when you said that about the British government, I'm like, I can understand that up to a point, but after a certain amount of time, it, you would like to think it couldn't affect things. Um, so, so yeah, you're absolutely right. Bully for the French government for releasing that, because if I remember correctly from your book, Josephine, like a lot of other people um, during the war, you know, she goes to her grave with some of her own secrets as well. So it's not like she said, here's every little tiny thing I did during the war. Just some of it went to the grave with her. Yeah, could quite the reverse, actually. Right. Josephine, you know, during her life, almost never spoke about her her uh, espionage activities during the war. Right. Almost never, and certainly in no detail. She very much did go to her grave with her secrets. And, you know, she, she was very, she always said the wartime, you know, her wartime activities were the proudest part of her life. That was what she was most wow. proud of. Her principled, undaunted, unyielding, brave, courageous you know, death-defying stand against Nazism was what 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 had you know defined her life really. Yes. You know that was her position, but she never spoke about the detail. And you know, I mentioned Dunderdale. You can you can talk about any number of these figures. Mm -hmm. Most of them go to their graves in silence. Wow. That reminds me of something I read about the people at Bletchley Park, because a lot of information that she, that Josephine's getting is going to end up at Bletchley. But even those people, they would go do their work, go home, never talking about it again. When the war is over, they go back to their lives. You just don't talk about it because it was duty. It was something that you did. Your country's in a crisis and you stepped up. And that's exactly what she did for her adopted country. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, she was... Um... I suppose she was hungering for a way to fight, you know, even before war was declared. And, you know, she'd seen the rise of, of Nazi Germany. She witnessed it at first hand. She'd been in Germany, in Berlin, performing, you know, in, in the run up to the war. Right. And of course, she'd arrived there expecting, as she had before in Germany, to have uh, in a wild, fantastic time and instead had been met by horrendous abuse and racism and, and, and you know, Nazi elites and brown shirts and black shirts and abuse. And after three weeks, she'd abandoned her show and fled Germany. That was the first of several such experiences. And actually, you know, Goebbels, the uh, the, the Nazi, Nazi Germany's propaganda minister, mm -hmm. had actually put Josephine on the front of a pamphlet you know, identifying and decrying the so-called enemies of the Nazi state. So she was already identified as a target of, um, you know, Hitler and his cronies. Right. And so in a sense, she had, she knew what was coming and she had to find the means to fight. And so when the French intelligence service decided that because they were so woefully underfunded and so woefully understaffed, mm -hmm. you know, prior to the war, and when they decided that they had to try to look for what they called the honourable correspondence, these freelance um, voluntary spies, people who spied for love of country, for patriotism, right. when they decided that was the only way they could try and counter the Nazi threat, the threat of spying from Germany, Josephine was one of those that they identified as being a potential agent. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. 
yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. That that's incredible because again, she's not French. She is American. But but I, I just I just want to stress something before we move on. So she has a hard time in America. She is she finds almost everything she's ever wanted in France. She goes to Germany. It's kind of like America where she's being treated bad because of her color. Uh, and, and the fact that she's a woman. And so, yes, how could she not want to defend France's place that has taken her into, into their heart? Like you said, she's the most photographed woman. She's rich. She has literally everything, and it's because of the culture in France. How could she not want to defend that? So my next question is, and, and I found this part of your book absolutely amazing. So it's, it's kind of a long one, but bear with me. So She's in Paris. She has fame. She has fortune. She's been accepted. Like you said, there's some dark rumblings coming out of Berlin as, as the Nazis, you know, they grow as a party, but then they, they take over the country in 1933. Um, but there are people in France, like there are people in any country, very intelligent, worldly, sophisticated people who can detach from emotion and go, you know what? War is coming. And you know what? It pains me to say this, but I think France is going to fall after France falls, we need to have information so we can begin to climb back to fighting back to freedom, to liberty, whatever you want to call it. And so you're right, they're, they're going to need these, these volunteers because they don't have the money. But there are people literally going, there's a big crash coming. We can't stop it, but we have to prepare for what comes after that. And so people like Josephine are contacted. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So the French intelligence service, wow. um, you know, Colonel Paul Pellol, Jacques Apte and others working hand in glove with the British intelligence service, right. the secret intelligence service, you know, Biffy Dunderdale, the Paris spy master, mm-hmm. you know, they knew that war was coming and they knew that France would fall. You know, wow. they, they, gave, they, they gave warnings to their governments. Right. They said, you know, and their governments would not listen because, you know, the First World War was just a few years ago. You know, millions had died. Mm. The horrors were still fresh in people's minds. You know, the war wounded were oh, still walking right. the streets. Yeah. And none of the, you know, the French government, the British government, none of them wanted to countenance another war with the old foe. And so, they, you know, their warnings were falling on deaf ears. Right. And so, you know, they, in, in, in their meetings, they prepared for what they knew was coming. France would fall. It would not stand against the onslaught, against the blitzkrieg. Mm-hmm. And once it fell, they would need a fallback option, some means to carry on the fight. What they didn't foresee right. and why they were so blindsided and why, you know, it was so cat- catastrophic was they just didn't foresee the speed of the fall of France, oh. that it would be a matter of days right. and the French resistance would collapse. And so therefore they would be overrun and overwhelmed. That's incredible. So, so yeah. And like you they're about to be overrun. France has been tearing itself apart since the end of the great war. Since 1933, Germany has been coming together under Hitler. He's got set priorities. He's got everybody, you know, uh, walking the same line. So they, they gear up for war rather quickly. The French are fighting themselves. And so, yeah, it's, it's not going to go well, but to literally have to go up to someone and go, I need you to risk everything to help protect this country that you love and we're not going to pay you. In fact, you're going to have to pay your own way, but she is more than willing to do that because she truly loves this country and she hates to see, you know, what has happened to it. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, uh, Josephine is, is, is mooted as one of these, you know, freelance uh, spies, these honorable, honorable correspondence as they were called and you know there's not a lot of enthusiasm at first you know in the dizian bureau the french counter espionage service because you know um they have a prejudice against women that was kind of the spirit of the time especially in these circles right but more importantly they you know that they're worried that she will be one of those you know i paraphrase but one of those fragile showbiz personalities who will shatter like glass at the first sign of any danger that's what they're worried about and of course there's been the you know, the example of Matahari, the World War One, um, you know, French performing artist who was recruited as a spy and was allegedly a double agent mm-hmm. and cast a, a pall over all of that kind of activity. And so, 
it's actually Jacques Abte, the Captain Jacques Abte, the uh, the French Dazim Bureau agent who's tasked to go out and recruit Josephine, and he doesn't want to, and he drives out there, <laughs> right. you know, with 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 we you know his heart and his boots. He's not right. he's not keen to do this, and he arrives at the chat her chateau in 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 Paris, expecting to. You know, find the archetypal Josephine, a ball gown, you know, dripping in jewellery, yeah. maybe her her pet cheetah Chiquita on a diamond studded leash. You know, that was the image <laughs> of her. And instead he finds um he hears a voice from the bushes and out pops this um this head and it's got a battered felt hat atop it, dressed in gardening clothes, clutching a rusty tin can full of snails. And she's been collecting them from the gardens to feed to her pet ducks because Josephine was a lifelong lover of animals. And this is not what Abte is expecting at all. This is the down to earth, you know, street fighting, salt of the earth, Josephine that no one really sees. And she takes them into the chateau Mm -hmm. and they sit in front of the fireplace and the butler serves champagne and he starts to sound her out because you, like you say, you can't just say, Hey, do you want to be a spy for France? It doesn't quite work that way. You've got to make small talk, try and, you know, get a sense of the person. And, and what's key here is that Abte starts to realize something absolutely crucial. He's getting treated to a very, very, very powerful up close personal, um, you know, episode of the Josephine effect. She had this ability and I've had it explained to me by, you know, those people who danced with her on the stage mm-hmm. at the time, you know, her, her uh, Jean-Pierre Reggiori, one of her dance partners now lives in New York, a Frenchman, but lives in New York, you know, explained this to me in great detail. And he said, listen, Josephine had this unique ability to reach out from the stage and make every single person in the audience feel as if she was singing and dancing just for him or for her. Wow. He said it was unique, that ability to reach out and touch people. And Abte is being treated to a, 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 a brilliant example of that in, in Josephine Chateau. And he suddenly realizes, my gosh, if we can harness that ability yeah. to the spying game, she will be unbeatable. And so he pops to the question, hey, you know, listen, uh, will, you, will you spy for France? And she says words to the effect, listen, France has made me everything I am. And, uh, you know, I am willing to give this country my life. And so that's how she's recruited. Yeah. That's incredible. Amazing story. Yeah. So he gets to see, he gets a glimpse of the steel behind that smile. And I just love that part. She's like, she's like, you know, she's just got these worldly eyes and she's like, just like looking right through him. So I just thought that was a neat scene in the book. Uh, Could you give us an idea uh, some of her her earlier missions, because I think, and, and tell me if I've got this right, because because not everything was written down, because she went to her grave with so many secrets, you kind of got to suss things out. But there were some very specific things that she helped out with that I think impressed a lot of people early on. And like you said, they realized she's the real deal when it comes to this counter espionage. Yeah, so her first aid uh, mission, which was given to her by Abte, pretty much like directly after that 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 recruiting scene wow. in the chateau, you know, they know that she has this amazing in with the Italians because she's told Italy, oh. she's befriended Mussolini, right. the Italian fascist leader, you know, for better or worse, and she's 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 you know she's a iconic figure right. uh, across Italy and with with Italian high society, and so the Italian embassy in Paris you know, we'll welcome Josephine with open arms. They know that. And what the Allies really need to know at this moment, that's France and Britain in particular, is what will be the intention of the Italian government, the Italian fascist government, if and when Germany declares war? Will Italy join the Axis? Will it remain neutral? Will it fight alongside the Allies? What are their intentions? They don't know. They, They task Josephine to find out. And a week after she's been given this mission, she calls Abte, She's very excited. Right. Nothing is said over the phone lines, of course, because they're, you know, everyone's listening to everyone's phone calls. Right. But they meet in central Paris. Josephine's driving her luxury Delage sports car, and she's so she's so excited, overexcited by her success. She kind of she's driving so crazily. She gets arrested by the police. <laughs> they think it's a drunk driver. Then they realise it's Josephine Baker. They let her off. Jacques Abte's pulling his hair out, thinking, "My gosh, can I ever control and harness and right. and, and and you know and manage this agent that I'm supposed to be handling?" Yeah. And then she tells him what she's found out. She said, "Yes, you know, Italy will join uh, Nazi Germany. Not only will Italy join Nazi Germany, but they have already cut a deal to do exactly that secretly behind closed doors." And of course, that intelligence wings its way to the highest echelons of Paris and London. And suddenly. 
you know, people know that she is the real deal. She can deliver. I mean, she's got the the the, the intelligence by seducing, whether intellectually or physically or both. We don't know right. the Italian, one of the military attaches at the Italian embassy. So she has worked her charms, that magic, and come up trumps. And that's just the first of one of many of these kind of groundbreaking missions in the war. Right, because you make this point in the book, and of course this was one of the main reasons she became an HC, an honorary correspondent, because this is a time of war. Everybody's hunkering down, everybody's trying to survive, and yet a famous, rich, international star, in whatever terms, should still be expected to do some traveling. So between her intelligence, her steel uh, that is her personality and her, you know, people are just going to expect her to travel. That's the perfect cover. So she so she can work for them and yet she can still move around. And, th- and in theory, no one's going to bat an eye. Yeah, I mean, you know, the idea is that Josephine, because, you know, she tours the world mm-hmm. and when she tours the world, she has, you know, dozens of tour trunks with her costumes, right. you know, her, her dresses and her jewels and her musical score sheets, mm. all that stuff she's got to carry with her. Right. It's the perfect conduit by which to smuggle intelligence, you know, whether it's written on her uh, musical score sheets or secreted in her tour luggage, whatever. Right. And of course, she has the perfect excuse to be crossing borders. Hey, I'm Josephine Baker. I'm going to Rio to sing. I'm going to Lisbon to sing. Even in times of war, people need to be entertained. Right. So that's the very idea, which, you know, is, is is the double endorsement for her as a potential uh, agent for the Allies. But, you know, it's even to the extent that those who knew France would fall mm-hmm. and they knew that they needed a means to reestablish the flow of intelligence to London right. – even before that happened, they thought Josephine could be the person to do that because she, almost uniquely amongst us, has that ability and that cast iron excuse to travel and not get stopped and not be suspected. That's incredible because it, it's somewhere around this time now. I, Again, it's hard to tell how much Josephine was involved or even maybe at all. But there were a couple of things that came out like uh, getting the Luftwaffe codes to London uh, the German plans to take over uh, Gibraltar, to use Ireland to attack Britain, to send uh, converted Irish agents to the U.S. So the Germans certainly did have a lot of plans. And some of this information, either through her or through the French intelligence, does get back to London. And they have a lot to worry about. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, after the fall of France, June 1940, the French intelligence service, those who wish to continue the fight, basically goes underground. So individuals like Pelor and Abte, they are still gathering intelligence as best they can in a a defeated country. Yet they have no means to send it to London and Britain, which was at that time the only dog in the fight anymore. Literally every single conduit, every single agent, every single radio transmitter has, has been shut down. So there is no way to contact London. It was so bad, in fact, that when Churchill was voted into power, Mm -hmm. one of the first things he did was have had a meeting with his intelligence chiefs and said, get me back into France. I don't care what it takes. We need visibility in France because without intelligence, we cannot win the war. And, you know, immediately that was the Battle of Britain and then the Blitz, of course, and then stopping the German invasion of Britain, which all knew was coming. So, you know, the stakes were extremely high. There's all this intelligence being gathered by Pelol and Abte and their underground network, but no way to get it to London. And so Josephine is tasked to carry it all. And she's tasked to travel from France um, in, in October November 1940, mm-hmm. to Lisbon, the capital of Portugal, so crossing any number of borders, Gestapo checkpoints, customs checkpoints, with all her tour luggage is stuffed full of this priceless intelligence. Right. I mean, this hall, this treasure trove of information, Literally. you know, that, that the French intelligence service has gathered since the fall of France. Yeah. And, you know, it, again, she the only way she can do so, she can get through, is to use her stardom. Her, her, her Josephine Baker persona as her cloak and her dagger. And so when she turns up at these, you know, they're traveling by rail and then by air, when she turns up at all these checkpoints yeah. and all, you know, and, and expects, expects to face questioning <laughs> and interrogation and have a luggage search, what actually happens is, you know, all of the all of the people who should be stopping her are so blown away yeah. by her star appearance, they kind of shout to their wives to come and get her autograph, <laughs> grab a photograph with her, and she manages to get through. It's absolutely extraordinary. That, that's incredible. Yeah, I love that part because there are people who are on the roads. There are people, if they're lucky, they get to tr- take a train. Here she is flying. 
Uh, well, and obviously it's a little safer because it's hard to check luggage if it's in the back of a moving plane. But, but I don't think I appreciated until I read your book how vital Portugal, Lisbon was as far as a hub because it's a neutral country in Europe during the war. And so a lot of agents are going to flock there and a lot of information is going to be exchanged. And so, yeah, that, that's her opportunity to get into the bigger leagues of, uh, of espionage and counter-espionage. Yeah, sure. I mean, Portugal was the spying hub of Europe because it was this kind of it was this neutral location, absolutely crucial strategically, geographically for Europe. Of course, Mm -hmm. major, major supplier of Wolfram tungsten, this crucial metal for tipping munitions um, so hard, so heavy. So, you know, Portugal was the was the location of the Wolfram Wars. That's what it became known in the Second World War. Mm-hmm. This 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 covert ultra secret battle between Britain and Germany to to monopolize the Wolfram because whoever could get those supplies, you know, would have a much greater chance of winning the war. And it's there in the British Embassy in Lisbon that, you know, there's a secret intelligence cell and, you know, that Josephine is tasked to deliver her tour luggage with that secret documentation, those dozens of files wow. that have been gathered by the French intelligence service with Jacques Abte, her, her French intelligence handler acting as her, you know, as a cohort to help get her through, right. you know, absolutely extraordinary that they managed to do it. It's, it's, it's an incredibly successful mission. And when that material is flown from Lisbon to London and arrives in London and reaches commander Dunderdale, mm-hmm. you know, their secret intelligence service handler from now on, he, telegrams them very shortly, sends a telegram to the British Embassy and says, we are delighted with what you have delivered to us. Um, And he gives them their next orders. That that's incredible because normally if you, if you do your job that's what's expected of you the superior doesn't say anything but if they're going to take the time to send a telegram in 1940 uh, the world then then obviously they must have been very impressed by what they were reading out of those boxes. Yeah, sure. And there's another reason for, for the communication yeah. as well. You know, one, they are massively impressed. Two, mm-hmm. Josephine and Jacques Abte were determined, uh, you know, as they were traveling to Lisbon to go from there, to fly from there to London to meet with General de Gaulle, the free French leader, the man who was right. trying to lead the French resistance in exile. Well, Dunderdale <laughs> asked them not to. That's a polite way of putting <laughs> right. it. Dunderdale won't countenance it and he won't countenance it for several reasons mm-hmm. the key reason the main reason is because what josephine and jacob just managed to do is reopen the intelligence pipeline the flow of information uh, from france to london right. that's absolutely groundbreaking and what dunderdale wants them to do is to keep that pipeline flowing and to do that one of them if not both of them have to return to france link up with Pelol again colonel Pelol, and get the pipeline pumping information oh my goodness. and so dunderdale says one of you has to go back into france immediately you have to turn around go straight back in find Pelol, and get this information pumping to london we need more of this stuff and so josephine says hey send me and so she jumps on a plane and very shortly she's only been in lisbon a matter of days she's flying back into france back into the country she just left right. solo on her own on a mission to find Pelol and link up with him again. That Now, that's very brave of her because the Germans have already made it clear that they don't like her. But the other thing was, I think, and I don't know the exact wording, but she promised when Germany invaded France that she would not perform until all the Nazis were either out of Paris or out of the country in general. And so... It looks like she's breaking her word, but at the same time, she's got a much bigger mission that she's on other than just worrying about her pride. Yeah, sure. I mean, Josephine had said she would never perform in France once uh, or until all the Nazis had left Germany. Uh, well, you know, she she's persuaded otherwise by Pelol. When she meets back up with him in France, mm-hmm. in Marseille, in the port city on the Mediterranean, Pelol says, look, Josephine, you have to perform. Right. And you have to perform for two reasons. One, it's your cloak and dagger. Mm-hmm. If Josephine doesn't perform, it's just too suspicious. Right. You know, you're making yourself even more of a target. And secondly, Josephine, you need the money right. because she had refused to get paid. Right. I mean, Jacques Capte was going to get paid for his work as an intelligence mm-hmm. agent, you know, for the Allies, as he should do. But Josephine had said, no, whatever work I do for the Allies in the war... I will do for free. And not only was she doing it for free, but she was using her own funds, obviously, to fund her intelligence activities, right. her flights, her work, and all the rest of it. And so Pelol rightly said, listen, you need to perform, you know, for your cover, but also to earn money. So they put on a show of La Creole, the comic opera, mm-hmm. 
in my say that uh, Christmas of 1940, it was, you know, a sellout, fantastic performance. Right. But it had to be cut short because before the end of the show, Pelol warned her, the Gestapo are coming for you and you have to flee France. Oh, I remember, yeah, that was the part of the book. I'm like, get out of there. It's like watching a horror movie. Get out quick. But yeah, no, but here, um, I, I'm sorry. I didn't want to, I didn't mean to cut you off. Did you want to add something onto that? No, okay. sure. I, you know, you're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, um, so the, the good news is that she's performing, she's earning money that she needs and helps with her cover at the same time as we're going to find out, you know, you can only stress your body out for so long before, no matter your age, you know, it's going to catch up with you. So if I could uh, jump in time a little bit, I, yeah, I sure. believe it's early 1941 and she has to get out of there. So she goes to sort, uh, to North Africa. And again, she's still going to work. She's still going to gather information. She's still going to entertain because that's her job. But there's also allied troops in uh, North Africa. So not only is she still being an entertainer, which is something she's very good at, she can actually bring smiles and laughter to those who are giving their all for the cause. Yeah, sure. So, you know, um, Josephine played this double role in North Africa. One, she was she was still playing a, a, you know, a vital role as, as, as a spy, mm-hmm. as an espionage agent. And she was still, you know, um, pumping that intelligence in, 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 into uh, London and, and in due course into Washington itself. Wow. But also... Mm-hmm. Uh, once the um, torch landings, the, the Operation Torch landings took place and American forces landed in North Africa, you know, the biggest amphibious operation of the war so far, right. you know, almost on the scale of D-Day in terms of its complexity, mm-hmm. you know, North Africa to be the springboard of Europe. Once that had happened, the Americans in particular realized that Josephine was a gold-plated entertainer and would be a fantastic um, asset to bolster the morale of the troops. And, and the American military offered her a, a, a an exclusive contract, wow. a very lucrative contract, right. to perform for them, for American troops, for the rest of the war. And Josephine again refused. And she said, no, for two reasons. One, I will never get paid for the, for the activities that I carry out on behalf of the Allies and freedom right. and against the Nazis in World War II. And secondly, I can't just perform for American troops. Yeah. I have to perform for all troops regardless of their nationality, as long as they're fighting in freedom's cause. Absolutely. As an American, I feel comfortable in saying that was a bit tacky of us to try to scoop her up for ourselves. <laughs> but but th- that's kind of how we think, all or nothing. Yeah. You know, so please forgive us for that. But, <laughs> yeah, no worries, yeah. But so so she's she's um she's performing for the troops, she's pushing herself, she's still trying to to uh, gather information. Um, she's starting to have health issues. But the one part that I really liked, because in the book you stress, London is trying very hard in all sh- in all different ways to keep Vichy France away from free France. It's just ugly. They're going to start fighting. It's just it's just not good. And so here she is. She finds out that the free French troops do not have their own organized entertainment for them. She, she adds them onto her list. She, so as, as busy as she is, she finds a whole nother group of people to entertain, which, of, co- of course, I'm sure they're very appreciative. But at some point, her, her health issues do catch up to her. Yeah. So, you know, these repeated back to back missions and often she's, you know, she almost invariably now, actually, she's she's carrying out solo espionage missions right. because bear in mind, only she has the ability to travel still. Abte, her supposed handler, can no longer leave leave North Africa. He can't even leave Morocco wow. because he just, just doesn't have the visas. He can't travel. Josephine can travel pretty much anywhere right. she wants to still, right. not to Nazi Germany, obviously, or to occupy territories largely, but to, you know, Spain. Portugal, even into France, into Vichy France, she's still free to travel and across North Africa, no problem at all. And so she is carrying out these back-to-back solo espionage missions. She's risking all. And she's also, you know, flogging herself to to, to entertain the troops. And she does fall terribly ill. Uh, She is, you know, she's fighting death. She's on death's door for months and months and months on end. This is in North Africa, in Morocco, in Casablanca. And she's she's taken into a private clinic called the Comte Clinic mm-hmm. in Casablanca, in, in Morocco, where, you know, for many, many months, it is feared she's going to lose her life many, many times wow. over. But they managed to make a a virtue out of a terrible necessity. Mm-hmm. She and Jacques Abte realized fairly quickly, and this is their genius, right. they realized that actually... 
they can make a bonus out of where Josephine is because this private clinic in Casablanca, everybody has a reason to go there. Right. It doesn't matter who you are, what your nationality is, what your religion is, what your beliefs are, what what's, what 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 gender you are, what age you are. Mm-hmm. Even everybody has a reason to go visit the superstar Josephine Baker when they realise she's on her deathbed in Casablanca. Oh. So her clinic becomes the perfect meeting point <laughs> for all the espionage. You know, individuals right. and all the military leaders and all the political leaders working for the Allies secretly or otherwise in Casablanca, which is part of Vichy France at the time. And so she, her, her clinic room becomes this kind of inviolable, inviolable, you know, um, sacrosanct hub from which, you know, intelligence meetings can be gathered. It's it's a dead letter drop where they can where they can drop secret intelligence parcels for each other and where Josephine becomes almost like the spy master orchestrating all now, whereas Jack Abte is out there kind of at the coalface trying to gather intelligence. And it's fascinating how, you know, from being the rookie agent and the student Mm -hmm. and Abte being the master and the handler, the tables are pretty much turned. And by, you know, midway through the war, she's become the spy master and he's he's the agent out there you know, gathering intelligence in the field. Right. I I, I love that part of it because, yeah, to, to take something as unpleasant as your as very bad health and to turn it into a positive, I mean, you must really be committed to a cause to think in terms like that. But that's the kind of spy I would be. Let me sit here and you all come to me. I'm, I'm pretty lazy. Oh, and by the way, on a side note, my wife read that section of your book about Morocco. So now we have to go there. So thanks a lot for that. So Hey, hey, you should go. You should stay in that hotel. You'll have a wild time. I do I do want to say that. So so she's having mm. these serious health issues, but she's still able to get the the, the job done. However, yeah. this is the part of the, the, the interview where people don't like when I say, I would like to save a lot of the rest of it for the readers because we have hardly touched the book. We have hardly touched her life. She does incredible things throughout the war. She does incredible things after the war. But I'm going to let the readers discover that on their own. However, there was one thing I, before I let you go. Um, when I first started talking to you, I said something like, I really didn't know much about Josephine, and so I was looking forward to your book. But it dawned on me as I'm halfway through your book, there's a lot of background, there's a lot of exposition, and I and it dawned on me, I'm glad you did that because I don't think just a more a narrow biography of Josephine Baker would have made much sense. You know, you got to give her the context. So by the time I'm finished reading this, I've got espionage, counter and espionage, spinning, lying from all these different countries. You know, you feel like you understand that world a little bit better. And I was just wondering um, to go down such a cynical path, which is what, you know, spying is all about. I was wondering what stood out to you as far as either practices or attitude or just the entire world of spycraft. Do you know what really kind of struck me was that, um, and it's a comment that a number of people from that world have made to me, because obviously I've got various contacts in that world and a lot of them have read the manuscript um, many before publication, Mm -hmm. uh, for which I'm very grateful. Anyway, a lot of them said to me, listen, you know, you'll, you'll generally find that the greatest spies have had a really tough life. They've been forged in fire. You said it earlier, what doesn't break you makes you stronger. You need that. Mm-hmm. You need that. You need that absolute street fighter hardness. So when the going gets tough, the tough get going. You know, when the rubber hits the road, Josephine was there because she had that in her soul. Right. And, you know, she was fighting not just for a cause, not just for an idea. She was fighting for herself for her own freedoms, you know, and that made her, that made her such a, 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 a world beating spy. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have said to me, listen, you know, okay, I can understand why she, you know, why she volunteered or was a spy in the first year, maybe the second year, but when she gets really ill, why doesn't she just say I've done enough? Right. right. I'm going home. It's time for me to go back to America and get ill and get on with my life, get well and get on with my yeah. life, get healed. Why does she not? Why does she just keep going? Well, she was undaunted. She would not give up. And you'd speak to people in that world, that world of espionage, and they tell you the people, the agents who are like that, at that mm-hmm. are those who've had a really tough upbringing and have learned to be fighters from the start. I love the way you describe that because basically, yeah, if you have a hard time. Uh, early on in life, you don't know anything else. And so everything is a fight. And I imagine if someone said to her, why are you still doing this? Because it still needs to be done. It doesn't matter that I'm sick. It doesn't matter that, you know, maybe the the tide of is turning on the war, but she's still got to do it. Um, So 
just real quick before I let you go, there's this tough, hard person that will not give up. She's near death. She's finding she's still doing everything. And she's, you know, like you said, spending her own money, which is not inconsiderable. And yet at the same time, compare and contrast that to this woman in her mansion with all of her various animals. Could you just give us a, a short list of some of the animals that she kept around with her in her entourage? Because I thought that was just so endearing of her. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a fascinating part of the story. You know, I talked earlier about how her her, her, her superstardom was her cloak and her dagger. Well, mm -hmm. the other part of her cloak and her dagger was her menagerie of exotic animals because Josephine was defined before the war in all her performances by this exotic cast of animals she kept on the stage. Right. You know, uh, her Great Dane, her monkeys, her marmoset, her, her, her python, her cheetah chiquita. I mean, all these animals, <laughs> they were part of her act. Right. And then, you know, there are times in the war when she's this super spy and she says, I need my menagerie of animals with me on this journey because no one yeah. will ever suspect Josephine Baker of being a spy if I'm surrounded by all these crazy <laughs> animals trying to break free, running after them, capturing them. As long as they don't eat the, the secret intelligence service documents in my <laughs> in my luggage, it's the perfect cover. And she does. She has these, these animals with her for the large part of the yes. war and they are the perfect the perfect shield. Oh it's 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 just another part of her genius it goes back to that original question i asked myself mm -hmm. how could such a instantly recognizable superstar had been a spy well that's why she was a spy yeah. you see a star i'm going to show you a star and you're not ever going to think anything else of me i've you know i've i fit the definition that you so it's brilliant it is absolutely brilliant um mr lewis thank you for coming on the show um, well, let's just go ahead and schedule your next interview because Lord knows you probably got another book coming out. But seriously, uh, I did want to thank you for your time. And I'm going to let you have the last word on the incredible Josephine Baker. And if you wanted to mention your next project, that would be fine. But again, that's up to you. Yeah, thank you. Miss. Uh, always, it's a pleasure to be on the show. Yeah. And, and I love being on your show because you you know your stuff. You've read the books. You, 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 you're so knowledgeable. But, you know, it, it's been an honor and a privilege, a challenge. Mm -hmm. Sure. Don't get me wrong, <laughs> but it's been an honor and a privilege to write Josephine's story. Uh, her wartime story. This is her wartime right. story. There are many biographies of Josephine Baker. This is not a biography of Josephine Baker. This is the story of Josephine's war. It's the story of Agent Josephine. Um, but it has been a real privilege and an honor. And I'm so glad that it, it you know, I, I, that I managed to get there because it was a tough, difficult 10 year journey. Wow. Um, you know, and, and we've had such amazing reactions all over the world to the book. So that's been edifying. And the next book, the one I'm just working on at the moment, in fact, I was in the recording studio today doing recording the audio book is the story of really the SAS, the Special Air Service, mm -hmm. the birth of special forces in the North African desert really early on in the war. Those maverick, crazy, piratical founders of this modern form of fighting and how they how they did that and how they took the war to General Rommel and the Africa Corps in the North African desert at Britain's and the Allies' darkest hour. Wow. Cracking story. Really, really engaging characters. You could not make these guys up. Uh, you know, really enjoying doing the audio book. Uh, these these stories tell themselves. That's incredible. I cannot wait. And, and it's I, is it coming out before this year is over with, if I can ask? Yeah, sure. It's, so it's it's due for publication late October this oh, year. Yeah. Excellent. Oh, and so let's schedule something in. Yeah, let's just go. Yeah. I'll have my people call your people. It'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> no, but but this book, like you said, Agent Josephine, American Beauty, French Hero, British Spy. Oh, and by the way, I got your audio book for this, and you read it yourself. So I was I really enjoyed that as well. You know, talking to you so many times. So now your head is in my voice. Uh, I said that wrong. So your voice is in my head. Uh, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I guess we'll, <laughs> we'll find out together. Uh, but Mr. Lewis, okay. thank you very much for your time and good luck with this book. Thank you. Really appreciate it. A pleasure as always.